Good morning. So as, as Lois has already said, <clears throat> today is a, is a special service for me, and I think uh, I didn't realize that it was going to be as hard to do this as it is. Uh, for the first service, it kind of surprised me, so I might as well just call it for what it is right out of the gate. Uh, but I've been here for about six and a half years now, uh, which is a long time, and uh, this will be my last Sunday here as a member of the staff. And so before I go on to talk about what we're going to talk about in a minute, I just wanted to, to acknowledge that and to thank all of you for the role you've played in my life and my family's life for the last six and a half years, um, allowing me to grow as a leader, as a pastor, as a teacher, um, for the ministry you've done to my kids and my wife, and I just, I, I really want to thank you for that before we go in beyond that even. So uh, six and a half years is a long time, and so we close the chapter, uh, close this part of the chapter, and, and yet... Uh, still stay connected in other ways. So I spent a bit of time thinking about what to preach about today. And because uh, what do you talk about when you've been at a place for as long as this uh, and are about to transition to a new space? Uh, it took me a while, uh, but with the help of actually other staff members, God placed this particular passage uh, on my heart for today. Uh, so we're going to talk about what we've already confessed in the middle of the Apostles' Creed. We're going to talk about the communion of saints. Uh, because even though we, we're going to separate in our physical locations for most Sundays, uh, we're still connected under the same head of Jesus. We're still connected inside of the kingdom. Uh, and so we're going to talk about what that looks like. What does it look for, like for us to be connected with the church worldwide and with each other here at Ivanrest? So the passage we're going to look at is John 17. So if you've got a Bible, open it to John 17. Uh, we'll be there for the whole time, verses 30, 13 through 23. We're going to look at those really closely. But before we do, I just want to give a little bit of a, uh, set the stage a little bit on what we're looking at here in John 17. So John 17 comes at the end of a long teaching Jesus does during the Lord's Supper. Actually, at the end of the Lord's Supper, he's speaking directly to the 12. Uh, actually, not the 12, the 11, because Judas has already dipped his bread into the plate with Jesus and is now left to go betray him. So Jesus gives this long teaching to the rest of the 11 who are still there. So we're, we're right before the crucifixion, during the Lord's Supper, uh, and then he's going to teach them a whole bunch of things, uh, a bunch of things that are, are really the, become the foundation of our faith. So the, the passage is leading up to it. We, we see things like Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's John 14, 6. That's in the teaching that comes right before what we're going to look at today. Jesus also proclaims the future coming of the Holy Spirit, which will become short at Pentecost, not too much after this time as well. Jesus proclaims the teaching of him being the vine and we being the branches, that if we want to grow, we've got to stay connected to the roots that are Jesus. He also uh, talks about how all of these teachings, though they're true, will cause the world to press back to hate the disciples for the message that they're going to preach. And so he teaches all of those ideas and more in those particular sections. If you have a chance to read John 13 all the way through 17 this week for your devotions, I recommend doing that. But what we're going to focus on today is the end of that message, which is Jesus' prayer for the disciples themselves. He's going to be praying to the Father on behalf of the disciples, and he's going to give them both encouragement and a charge within that, and that charge is also meant for us today, and that's what we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's just start by reading the prayer. It's in John 17, starting at verse 13, and says this. I'm coming to you now, 
But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, we have a passage here that is absolutely jam-packed with stuff. I wish I had time to break it all down, but we just don't have time to chase every rabbit today. There's so much stuff here, we could probably do six messages just on what's in this little bit here. But what I want to show you today, I think is really, really special. That as we walk through this passage uh, slowly, you'll see that there's a four-part progression that leads to something really beautiful at the end. Um, What I mean by a four-part progression is that each of the points we're going to look at, they're going to be four different points, but they're not just standalone points. They build on each other. So we're going to talk about something, and then we're going to put a layer on top of that, and we're going to put a layer on top of that, and then finally put a layer on top of that to see the big picture. So hopefully, um, I'm going to try to reset often. Um, So my my hope is that we can all just stay on the same page and work in that direction together. If you miss something, I'll, I'll reset back often so that we can remain on the same page. All right, so we begin with part one, which is in verse 13, which says this, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. So remember, we talked about this just a minute ago. Jesus is praying. He starts by saying, I'm coming to you now. What that means is that he's talking to God the Father, and he's just about to be crucified. And so he's making the declaration, in a little bit, I'm coming to you now. I won't be on the earth anymore in the same way. But he also says that he has some things to say before he does that, before he leaves. And so what he's going to say coming up is really important for the context of the rest of the prayer we're going to look at. Why is Jesus saying the things he's about to say? Well, he says it because he desires that we may have a full measure of joy. But I want you to see this. It's not just a regular joy. It's the joy Jesus himself has inside of us. What Jesus is about to say is is that he desires us to have his own joy inside inside of each of our hearts. When he says in the next few statements, every part of it is meant to stir in us a supernatural kind of joy that's found in Christ Jesus himself. It's the, this is the kind of joy that makes us feel more alive. It's like a deep-seated, passionate kind of joy that makes everything in the world look a little bit brighter. Jesus' desires that we have the kind of joy that produces an unexplainable hope in the future. He hopes that we have the kind of joy inside of, inside of us that allows us to believe that no matter what our circumstances might be, that there is a way forward. Jesus says, my prayer The things that I'm saying are said so that they may have a full measure of my joy within them. 
Each and every single thing we're going to look at needs to be read through that context. Why is Jesus saying the things he's saying? Because he wants to produce that kind of joy inside of us. Okay? That's what he's aiming for, and I want you to keep that in mind the whole way through. Because that leads us into part two, which starts in verse 14. He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And so if you're like me, you read that first part and you go, okay, so what Jesus wants to create in us is this supernatural kind of joy. And he follows it up by saying that. Which, honestly, it doesn't sound super joyful, does it? To me, it sounds a little scary, actually. Uh, he begins good. He says, I, or he begins well. He says, I have given them your word. Well, that part's good. We know that we have the actual words of God. We're all on board with that. Excellent. And he says, oh yeah, and the world has hated him for that. Ah, right, that's kind of a buzzkill, isn't it? We start off, we, went, we thought this was supposed to produce a kind of joy, but that's, that doesn't seem joyful at all. What he's saying is that the word of God will actually make people hate us. Well, how is that possible? That doesn't seem like good news at all, does it? So we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the world hate those who have the message of God? Well, Jesus himself answers it. He says, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Which, if we really stop and think about that, that's strange as well, isn't it? Because at this point in history, Jesus is actually part of the world. He's living in flesh and blood. He's part of the world now, but differently Right? He's in the world just like we are in the world. So what does he mean when he says he's not of this world? He clearly exists within the world. He clearly has flesh. He has blood. He has substance. So he must mean something different. And so what he's saying is he's saying that he's part of a kingdom that supersedes this world, that's bigger than the world, that's above the ways of this world and are not compatible necessarily with the ways of this world. When Jesus says that he is not of the world. He, he's pressing back on the structures that exist in our current space. You see, the world we live in has, sets, has a set of rules and structures that have persisted throughout time. They look a little bit different depending on the culture or the space that you're in, but these same kind of ideas seem to pop themselves up over and over and over again throughout human history. Ideas like self-preservation, look out for yourself, Right? In, from, a, from a worldly perspective, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to take care of me and maybe take care of my family. We've got to watch out for us. We've got to preserve. We've got to, we've got to, we've got to look out for number one, right? That's the prim, primary goal for many, many people. Or ideas like advancing oneself, to constantly be striving to be greater than. Or ideas on what authority looks like or prestige looks like. Or ideas on tribalism or nationalism, being with people who are like you and keeping other people out so we can, we can keep the stuff that's ours. Or prejudices and all those things, these ideas of the world that persist throughout culture are the, what, are the ways of the world. And Jesus says, I don't function underneath those kinds of rules and structures. Actually, a quick read through the New Testament and you see that Jesus actually turns most of those things directly on top of their head. Self-preservation. Earlier on in John 15, he actually says, there is no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. It's in the message he was just seeking. The goal is not to preserve yourself. Actually, to not preserve yourself is a greater 
calling. Or the idea of being the best at all things, well, Jesus actually says the first will be last, that we humbly serve one another. Or authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Or tribalism, just look at the way that he, Jesus interacts with those who are different, both the Romans and the Samaritans. Everything the world has said, this is how it works. Jesus said, actually, it's the opposite. The kingdom works differently. I am not of this world. You see, the teachings of Jesus rattled the established structures of the world, and they still do. And people didn't like that then. And honestly, even as followers of God, sometimes we don't like that, do we? Because when the followers of Jesus take Jesus seriously, it inevitably challenges the world's norms, which rattles those who are in power, and they press back. When we take Jesus seriously, it's going to shake things up a bit. It's going to make us uncomfortable. And one of the things the human race does not like is to be uncomfortable. I would argue it's actually one of the biggest idols in America today. If you don't believe me, just think about how repulsed you are by the idea of sustained discomfort. Sounds miserable, right? Something that we very adamantly press back upon. But if we're going to live the way Jesus has called us to live, we will meet resistance because we're going to make people uncomfortable. Now, it's interesting, though. Jesus warns us that that's the case. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. But look at what he says about it. He doesn't, he, he doesn't say, so then run away from the world. He doesn't say, then take yourself out of the world, or God, please take them out of the world. He actually prays the opposite, doesn't he? He, says, he asks us to lean into it. He goes, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but you protect them while they're in it. He says, they have a purpose. They have work to do. We remain in the world because God has plans for us. And we're going to look at what those are later. For now, Jesus says, even though the world may hate the message of countercultural truth that Jesus teaches, he prays, he prays to God, leave them there anyway. But protect them from the evil one because the evil one is going to want to stop what they're going to be trying to do or what God's going to be trying to do through them. Because as we'll see in just a minute, the mission that we're sent on contains some pretty amazing things. So quick recap to make sure we're all on the same page. We've talked about two progressive concepts here. Part one, Jesus is telling us all of these things so that we may experience a fullness of joy that's found only in Jesus himself, which is pretty cool. But then he says he's given us the words of God, the word of truth, which is a different word than the rest of the world, that, than the rest of the world preaches. In many ways, it's actually direct contrast to what much of what the world believes is important. And so he says, as a result, the world may hate you for the word that I've given you. But he says, don't go anywhere. Keep them there because we have a mission, we have a goal, we have something to do or something that God's going to do through us, I should say. So hopefully we're all on the same page. Let's move to part three. Part three begins at verse 17. It says, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. So these particular verses are super important to understanding the rest of this section. Jesus has already previously said we have a purpose, we have a mission, but we're going to need something in order to fulfill that mission. What are we going to need? Well, Jesus says if we're going to go out and do the mission that God's going to send us on, we're going to need him to sanctify us. 
Now, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with the word sanctification, what it basically what it, it's a Christian word uh, that, that we don't use in many other spaces, uh, but we use it here. Uh, and what it means really is just to be made holy, to be purified. Um, when you accept Christ, you're something that's called justified. You're made right in God's eyes. And then you begin the process of sanctification, the process of, uh, of removing the bad stuff in your life and filling it with good, to be progressively sanctified, become more, becoming more and more like Jesus himself. And so Jesus says you're going to have a mission. You're going to be sent out. In order to be sent out and actually accomplish what you're supposed to do, uh, God needs to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus in the, in the first place. But I want you to notice something. Jesus asks the Father to sanctify us by the truth. Then he follows that up by saying that your word is truth. So essentially what he's saying is sanctify them by the scriptures, Right? Which, if you stop and think about it, that's really, really interesting. Because I think most of us, when we think about reading the Word, or reading the Word of God, reading the Scriptures, we think about us working on it. We take a piece of Scripture, we read it, we do our best to try to understand it. We maybe take a, we read a book about it, maybe we uh, talk to some other people about it, maybe we break down the word order, or the, try to go to the Greek, whatever it may be. And we do work on it to try to understand it and then apply it. We do most of the work. And there is a place for that. But I want you to look again at this passage. In this particular passage, do, do we do any work in regards to the Word of God? We don't, do we? It says God, God sanctifies us through His Word. Essentially, we don't work on the Word. The Word works on us. Which parallels really, really well with Hebrews 4. It says, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the hearts. So you see here, Jesus' prayer for us is not that we go out and do a bunch of stuff in regard to the word. His prayer is that we go to the word humbly and allow it to do a bunch of stuff to us. His prayer is that we approach the word humbly so that it can, be, it can begin to surgically sanctify us through God's power and the Holy Spirit so it can change us, to equip us to, for the mission that God has for us. Jesus says, keep them in this world because they have a mission. And God's word gets us ready for that mission. It cuts the fat, it removes the baggage, it brings us closer to Jesus himself. Jesus says, I sanctified myself so that they would be truly sanctified. That we may be saved, that we may be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we may be brought into the fullness of life that comes from walking with Jesus closely. Because when we are, when we're, turned, when we're made more like Jesus, we go out proclaiming that message of hope and joy to the rest of the world, and that's compelling. Even if there are people in the world that will hate us for it. All right, so far, we're being told all of this so that we might experience the fullness of Jesus' joy. We've been given the word of God, and because of its countercultural message, the world may actually hate it. But Jesus doesn't want us taken from the world, but protected from, protected from the evil one within it. Because we've been given a mission. We will be sent out, so we need to be prepared, and we get prepared by being sanctified through the word. All right, so we're building on each part. Hopefully we're all tracking still. If not, I guess we'll have to talk about it afterwards. I don't know what else I can do. <laughs> so you ready for part four? 
This is where it all comes back around. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, we are sent out to proclaim the life that we found in Christ, the sanctifying, life-changing life that comes from knowing Jesus. And though some in the world will hate that message, others will be compelled by it. And they'll join in to the movement, to the church, to the message. Now I want you to look really closely at the end here. We've prayed through some pretty deep spiritual concepts. Really the foundations of faith. But look at how much page space Jesus gives to this last part and the weight that he places upon it. He says, through your witness, through our witness, people will come to know Jesus. And it's very likely that many of those people will look differently from those that we're used to. They may believe differently or come from a different culture or race or nationality or even religion. And his prayer is that even in all of that diversity that we are one. From his time frame, Jew and Samaritan are both under the same Jesus. Male and female, Jew or Greek, there is no difference anymore, slave or free. In our culture, Arab or Caucasian, former Muslim, lifelong Christian, American or Mexican, Republican, Democrat, we're all under the same head of Christ. You see, the church is supposed to be a unique place on earth. A place in which people of all different backgrounds, creeds, races, and cultures meet together in the same space with no differentiation between rich or poor, immigrant or native, those who are struggling to overcome sin or those who have found freedom in Christ. They're all welcome under the same head. Jesus' prayer is that the church is a place of unity, of oneness, of collective humanity, and he doesn't just mean that casually. He says, my prayer is that they will be one just like Jesus is one with the Father. That's the model that we've been given for unity. Not a kind of casual unity, a deep, intimate unity like Jesus has with the Father himself. Because you see, if that kind of unity in the church, his prayer is that the unity of the church will be so deep that it will actually mirror the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That's the goal. The goal is that the unity in the church will be so deep that it will actually mirror the relationship between Jesus and the Father. That is a weighty statement, isn't it? Because look at what happens when the saints commune. When the church is united together as Jesus is with God the Father, he says, may they be united in that way so that the world may believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Our message, the message of the church, the gospel, and, it, and, it's, and it, the strength of how we proclaim it is directly tied to our unity. Both here at Ivanrest and with our Christians and brothers and sisters around the world, Jesus says, when they're united, the world will believe that I am who I say I am. 
When we treat each other well, when we are united with each other, when we're all on the same page, it's much easier for the world to believe that the message we proclaim is actually real. But we also realize that that's really hard, isn't it? To have that kind of unity. Because we all see the world a little bit differently, don't we? We think differently. We have different ideas on how a church should be run or a country or how the sacrament should be done or the color of the carpet or whatever it might be. So how do we unify amongst all of those differences? Luckily, Jesus speaks to that too. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so they may be brought into complete unity. How do we be united amongst all of our differences? Our unity is only possible when we shift our focus off of ourselves, off of all of those differences that we just mentioned. We shift our focus off of all of those things and we fix it entirely and completely on Jesus himself. How do we unify? We draw near to Jesus. We pull into what we all share, which isn't our traditions or our culture or our denominations or our race or anything else. Those are things of the world, and we've already established we are not of the world. It's very clear in this passage. We unify through the glory of Jesus given to us, and he then works through us, I and them, and you and me, he declares. See, the communion of saints is only possible when we realize that we're actually all at the same table. That we're all part of the same body. That we all beat with the same heart. That we all share the same head. The communion of saints is only possible if we humbly set aside all the things of the world, the structures, the traditions, and the lines that we draw, and humbly come together at the feet of Jesus. See, we live in a world that's more divided than it's been in a really long time. More divided than it's ever been in my lifetime. We, we live in a world in which we hold on to our ideologies tightly. A world in which people are banding together in their tribes with those who are like them, who, with those who think like them, look like them, talk like them, vote like them, speak like them. That's the world we're in right now. But this passage shows us that we get a chance to be different. We have, the oppor- we have an opportunity as the church at Ivan Reston globally to create a space that throws away all of those divisions. We have an opportunity to experience the love of Jesus with each other and with anyone else that will come into our space. Because look at the end of the passage. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you gave me in order that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, in our unity, created by the glory of Jesus, poured down on us, then he says, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them. Our unity is a tangible representation of God's love to the world. When people look at the church, if we're united in the way that we should, they should actually be able to see how much God loves them. The communion of saints 
The unity of the body created by turning our eyes upon Jesus tangibly shows the entire world that we and they are loved by God, and not just a little bit either. It shows the world that God loves them to the fullest, that God loves him just as much as he loved Jesus himself. The world will know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. And this is where it all comes together. Jesus prays for us before he dies so that we may be filled with a full measure of his joy. We have been equipped with the word, the word that works upon us, sanctifies us, works to remove sin from our lives so that we can draw closer to Jesus himself in order to be sent out to proclaim that good news to the world. Now the world may actually hate that message because it presses back on their comfort and their norms, but the message persists. Because in a world filled with division, exclusion, racism, and pain, Jesus' glory is poured out upon those who trust in him so that we may be united as closely as Jesus is united with the Father. And then through our communion, through our shared faith, through our shared head in Christ, everyone here and everyone in the world gets to see that God loves them. Now that's a gospel message, right? That's good news. That's joy-producing, and that's what we get to share. So let's close by looking at this passage one more time. Since I say these things, Jesus says, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that you may have a full measure of my joy within you. I have given you the word of God, and the world has hated you, for you are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you be taken out of the world, but that you are protected by the Father from the evil one. Because you are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Be sanctified by the truth. God's word is truth. As I have been sent into the world, I have sent you into the world. For you I sanctify myself, that you too may be truly sanctified. But my prayer is not for you alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through your message, that all of you will be one, just as I am in the Father and that he is in me. May you also be in us so that the world may believe that the Father has sent me. I have given you the glory that the Father gave me, that you may be one as we are one, I and all of you and you and me, so that you may be brought to complete unity. Because then, In your unity, the world will know that I am who I say I am. And the world will know that he loves each, that God loves each and every one of you to the fullest, even as he has loved me. Let's pray. Father God, We thank you for the gift that you've given us through Jesus. We thank you for the continued grace you give us in our failure to be united. God, we pray that you do fill each and every one of us with the joy that comes from Jesus himself. Pray that you remove the distractions that have kept us from focusing on him. Pray that you bring us all to the same table with our brothers and sisters worldwide to commune as saints. God, we pray for a oneness in the church, that the divisions and separations of this world won't exist here. 
that the church will be a place that represents your love well to the world. That when people look at it, whether it be Ivanrest or the Church Universal, they'll see that you do truly love them and love each and every one of us. We pray all these things through the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.